TNDC Podcast Season 2, Episode 2. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name, I've got a name. Today we're really honored to be sitting with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Senator President Obama, General Martin Dempsey. Analysis of Trump's first year from a foreign policy perspective. What do you, what would you expect in the next three years? In that world where you have five significant security challenges, no one nation can afford to expend the resources necessary to manage by themselves all five of those challenges. How do you feel that President Trump essentially recognizing the reality that Jerusalem is the, the capital and has been mm. the capital of Israel for a, some, a number of time, you know, a long time now, play into the stability of that region and how does that change things? How Trump is, is changing America's view with some of our allies and uh, what some long-term impacts of that might be. Is it logical to believe for them to say, actually maybe a, a nuclear weapon is the only true guarantee of their survival in a world where America and, and NATO have become so proactive in removing despots. If you can take the nuclear issue off the table with a rogue nation, they're, they're just a lot easier to deal with in every other way. What does kind of scrapping these deals and these diplomatic successes that we've had, what impact does that have on, say, diplomatic efforts with yeah. somewhere like North Korea? What do you foresee our, the end game being with our involvement in, Afgan in Afghanistan? Yeah. How do we relinquish control to empower those right. people? What is the current state of the U.S. military, and in particular, you know, in terms of spending and in terms of how it should fit into a, a budget as we continue to try to work all that out? What advice would you give to our generation? Duke's phrase in the business school, of course, is developing leaders of consequence. You know, not just someone who's going to be given the title of leader, but who's going to actually do something with it. TNDC Podcast Season 2, Episode 2. We've set up our roving studio at the Sanford School on Duke's campus and are coming off our live episode with Bill Crystal and Henry Olson yesterday, where we chat about the polarization of recent uh, of the current electorate, all under the guise of Trump one year in. Today, we're really honored to be sitting with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs under President Obama, General Martin Dempsey. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Thanks this for afternoon. inviting me. Um, so, by way of agenda, we are hoping to still kind of follow that same uh, guise of Trump one year in, analyzing from a foreign policy perspective, kind of do a, a global tour with you, if you will, of uh, you know current state of various regions and so forth. Sure. Um, but if we if we kind of throw a, a high level question at you first, uh, analysis of Trump's first year from a foreign policy perspective and any glaring differences from uh, the Obama eight years. Prior. Well, I mean, I think the president's been, President Trump then has been pretty clear about um, his America First policy, which includes both um, economics and national security interests. Um, you ask, how did that compare to President Obama's administration? I, I think it's pretty evident that President Obama was um, more a multilateralist, a multinationalist. Uh, that is, now, having said that, he, as you know, when he became president, when he ran for president, I'm talking about President Obama now, he made it um, a platform of his campaign that he would reduce our use of the military 
disentangle us from the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and emphasize foreign policy and diplomacy over the use of the military. And in many areas of the world, he accomplished that. Um, it remains to be seen, though, you ask about President Trump one year in. I, he's been very clear about his America First strategy. I'm not certain that uh, we've seen the manifestation of it yet. And, and, and so what, do you, what would you expect in the next three years then? I mean, it, well, I mean, look, we've got, an, and I'll speak about national security. That's, sure. That happens to be my expertise. You know, f probably beginning in 2014, the, the country was faced with multiple national security challenges and in a way that it hadn't been since the uh, early 90s. So the Soviet collapses, we become um, kind of a uh, kind of the great power in the world. The Russians had not yet uh, manifest their their current strategy, which appears to be to reestablish a sphere of influence. The Chinese had not yet begun to emerge on the world stage in any significant way, militarily, economically, to be sure, but not militarily. Uh, it, you know, 2014 was the probably the the zenith of ISIS. Now we can talk about ISIS as an in, you know, as a single group, but it's, it is a reflection of the underlying fragility of the region in that area that stretches from Afghanistan to Nigeria, really. And there'll, there'll be other groups now. ISIS may, in fact, morph into something else. It's, you know, we went from an individual group to a movement. It's, you know, one might argue it's a meme today. And so you've got this kind of generational plus problem based on the fragility of the Middle East. But the picture I'm painting for you here is Beginning in about 2014, we see Russia asserting itself, China asserting itself in the, in the uh, South China Sea in particular. Um, we see Iran and North Korea um, beginning to challenge our security interests in ways they hadn't prior. And we've got this, as I described, the generational challenge that stretches from Africa. So, in that world where you have five significant security challenges, uh, you ask about the next three years. No one nation can afford to expend the resources necessary to manage by themselves all five of those challenges. And so I predict that in the next five years, there will be a kind of a, a reset of relationships. But we we have 53 allies and partners around the world, and we're going to need those allies and partners to handle the challenges we face, that multiple, you know, these kind of converging challenges. So, so you mentioned there the, the kind of the deep instability of, of the Middle East as a region and, and, and that being an ongoing challenge for many, many years. How do you feel that President Trump essentially recognizing the reality that Jerusalem is the, the capital and has been mm. the capital of Israel for some, a number of you know, a long time now? How does officially recognizing that reality play into the stability of that region, and how does that change things? Yeah, I think I I, I think it's probably a little premature to 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 assess with any certainty the impact across the region. I mean, you know, as you know the. Um, most of the um, Muslim world has has condemned the the declaration because, of course, the you know that's the site of the of the three um, principal religions in the world. They all consider it at some level a holy 
and sacred place. I think, though, that what it does do is it, it certainly diminishes our role as an arbiter uh, among the stakeholders, notably among the, the um, Israelis and the Palestinians, um, because in a sense, at least from their view, whether it's, it was the intention of the president, but from their view, they would see us as no longer a neutral party in, in an arbitration. So, but I don't know how that'll play out. I don't know who will fill the void, because uh, there is a void. I mean, somebody's got to help arbitrate. But I think it certainly diminishes our standing as an arbiter in that issue, in the, in the um, Israeli-Palestinian issue. So, so you mentioned our diminishing ability as an arbiter there, and you've mentioned, uh, you know, Trump's focus on this kind of America first agenda. I, a, a lot of what we heard yesterday uh, in our in our panel that we did was uh, was about his domestic policy maybe not being as damaging as some of the never Trump folks might have anticipated that it would be, but the concern being that his foreign policy and particularly his desire to kind of remove America from its prior stance as, you know, this worldwide arbiter, uh, that could be something that has long-term impact, particularly with those 53 allies that you mentioned earlier, and particularly at a time where, as you mentioned, it's going to be important for that group to be together to combat these kind of five forces. I'm curious uh, for your perspective on how Trump is is changing America's view with some of our allies and uh, what some long-term impacts of that might be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it, it, again, it's probably, you know, one year is um, a little um, too brief for me to speak with any certainty about it. But I, but I do think in some ways um, what President Trump has done with our closest allies, the, our NATO allies, is, is a continuation but, a, but, a, but an increase in volume in criticizing them for... Uh, what I think we all know is an inadequate contribution to our collective defense. I, I don't sense that the administration is walking away from collective defense. That that would be some that would be a serious piece of foreign policy business. Um, I do think uh, this president is asserting himself inside of the halls of NATO in a way that um, that his predecessor and and their predecessors did not. I mean, you know, we. I think all pressured our allies in certain ways over time, uh, generally in private, for the most part in private, and this president is doing it in public. I, I don't know that it'll, it will, um, I don't know that it'll in any way um, degrade the alliance. I think what we have to be a little cautious about is the, the effect inside the alliance is probably manageable. I'm not sure what it says to our potential adversaries. In other words, I'm not sure whether you know, Russia's sitting there while we're doing this interview thinking, aha, we can drive a wedge between the United States and, and its NATO allies. Um, I, don't, I just don't know. I think we'll have to, we, we certainly should be alert for that and reinforce the fact that we do have obligations to NATO and, and intend to fulfill them at every opportunity. So speaking of kind of potential adversaries, um, as Jake mentioned, we'd kind of like to go on a little bit of kind of a, a, a world tour of these, starting in perhaps East Asia with North Korea and, and um, I guess similar to Iran in terms of uh, potentially hostile adversaries who have nuclear ambitions. And we've talked about this on the podcast in, in a previous episode. And one of the arguments you hear sometimes is that given over the past 20 years, America's interventions in removing kind of auto autocratic powers, mm -hmm. um, even former allies like Saddam Hussein in, in, in Iraq, 
Is it rational for an autocratic regime that's primarily concerned only with their own longevity and their own position, is it logical to believe for them to say, actually, maybe a, a nuclear weapon is the only true guarantee of their survival in a world where America and, and NATO have become so proactive in removing despots? Yeah, and, and yeah, I've, I've been asked the question about you know the rationality of these two, let's call them rogue regimes, if you will. Um, although that's our perspective of them, obviously. Uh, I, you know, there is a certain, there is a logic to their aspiration to have nuclear weapons, given their inherent weakness in every other way. And and so, yeah, there's a logic to it. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 reckless and irresponsible. Uh, we certainly can't, you know, condone it. I don't know um, what breaks the impasse. Because, you know, look, technology is is a little is far more difficult to control these days. You know, to to box up and and put on a shelf that we only we have access to. And and so, I, you know, we're we're talking about nuclear weapons now. We could equally be talking about cyber tools, and it's not in or biological warfare uh, instruments or, you know, whatever is the next disruptive technology because it's going to be somebody's going to grab it so i think you know the answer for me in those you know i, I think of the world as uh, that, that we uh, in, with which we interact as kind of two heavyweights you know if this was a we we're describing boxers it's two heavyweights russia china two middleweights you know the north koreans and the iranians and then one network which is you know kind of morphing all the time um, in terms of the two middleweights, my own personal instinct in dealing with them is, you know, even more so than in dealing with the the near peer competitors of Russia and China. I think with middleweights, you really do have to build a coalition um, because of the fact that uh, you know they have there's such a uh, potential for regional spillovers and miscalculations. There's the there's the great potential for, um, um, you know, the, the, this kind of, of issue. That is to say, the two middleweights who feel themselves to be threatened as a regime are certainly more prone to, to reckless acts and miscalculation than a, than a near-peer competitor who understands, you know, where, who kind of plays by the rules, if you will. Yeah. And so my, the way I describe it, and have described it when asked about North Korea, I, I kind of use a sports metaphor. I mean, you know, when you look at what does it take to win a football game? I'm talking American football yeah. now. Um, you know, generally the team that wins controls the clock, you know, makes, you know, fewer mistakes, fumbles the ball less, fewer turnovers. Um, and that's kind of the way I look at North Korea. You know, we ought to be controlling the clock, you know, n neither artificially accelerating it nor artificially slowing it down. It just, we ought to, we, because we're, we have all of the reason, we have all the benefits, all the advantages, it seems to me, and therefore own most of the responsibility for the pace at which this will or will not be resolved. That That's kind of a simplistic metaphor, but... I think it works, and um, and then of course the other aspect of it is this aspect of sharing the task here with with those who have as much or more to lose, and of course in our case that would be the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Chinese, and even the Russians. On the topic of controlling the clock, I know that you know I'd love to hear your comments on kind of what Trump's approach has been to that. It strikes me that 
you know, utilizing Twitter as your main tool for diplomacy and uh, calling the leaders of these unstable countries names is potentially not the best way to control the clock. Uh, what what does controlling the clock look like to you and what could perhaps the current administration do to control that clock? And, and actually, I was thinking a, a similar question. If you uh, a follow on to that would be what role behind the scenes do you think the U.S. played in forcing or we see South Korea and North Korea talking for the first time mm-hmm. in forever? And of yeah. course, the Olympics are right. are upon us and yeah. And so kind of tandem question there. Well, I mean, look, let me answer the question by suggesting that, um, w- you know, the policy in which I was immersed and participating was a policy of, um, you know, working with allies and then working kind of on the on the periphery of that on, you know, emerging technologies and asymmetric capabilities um, and. And in so doing, you know, not um, keeping the, you know, again, we're the status quo power, and the status quo power typically tries to preserve the status quo, right? I mean, that's by definition what status quo powers do. And so that that has been our path, and I was content with it. And, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, even since I left the job just two years ago, the, the North Koreans broke out. They, they exhibited a breakout capability. Not sure where they got it. One could speculate about, you know, and I have seen speculation about Eastern Europe and Ukraine and places where this capability existed of a fashion and in certain ways in, with intellectual property, and, and it seems to have migrated. And they seem to have gotten this capability from external sources. But in any case, they broke out. So then the question becomes, at what point um, do we feel threatened in an existential way um, and and if the calculus is with those who know the intelligence, if the calculus is were there, then that then it makes sense that we would speed the clock up, right? I mean, but I don't have that intelligence. I don't have access to that intelligence. On the other hand, if you know, if there uh, is doubt about whether they, you know, that the 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 ballistic missiles they have can survive reentry or can be weaponized you know, can be miniaturized. If there's still doubt about that, then, you know, my own instinct would be to, to control the clock. And, of course, taunting and, you know, the use of, of insults and... and, and my my red button's bigger than yours. Yeah, I mean, th- those, those accelerate things, right? So now, but let me concede, and it's, uh, you know, important to do so, that um, we, it's true that we have followed a pretty routine process for trying to mitigate North Korean behavior for a very long time with not much success. So, you know, I'm conceding to the president that this could work. I mean, you know, he, this fact of speeding up the clock, if you will, but it's risky. I mean, and you know, one of the things that the chairman does for the president, the president ultimately owns is the, is risk, is the calculation of risk. And this is certainly a riskier approach. And, um, but as long as we, you know, we keep our our antenna up for what what it's producing, we should be able to manage it. But you know, frankly, I, th- I I am in the former camp, which is, you know, I think we ought to try to control the clock a little more until we're sure that that this capability is, you know, is uh, extant and urgent. So we talked about kind of middleweights and heavyweights and kind of staying in the same region, and, and we talk about the potential of, of kind of. You know, the huge interest that China has in this region right. and, and, and the, the dominance that it's beginning to get in, in, in this sphere of influence. How does America engage with China in a way that 
as a kind of as a as a near peer mm-hmm. competitor, they 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 stay as a competitor and not as a an, an enemy. Yeah. No, you this is that is the question. I mean, how do we avoid Thucydides' trap, right? You know, which is of course. You know, rising powers always challenge status quo powers, and it generally ends in conflict. And yeah, I think we can avoid that, though. Um, I and and I do have some personal experience in this, in the sense that you know, when whenever I would um, in my counterpart visits to China, or when I brought my counterpart to visit me in Washington, we would often talk about the things that um, concern us about about Chinese military actions. You know, the economics are not, were not my responsibility, but of course security was. So we would talk, my Chinese counterpart and I would talk about, you know, kind of the, the norms of interaction and international law. And, you know, that would be the way I would approach it. And he would, of course, counter with, well, those laws were all made when we were, you know, down on our luck and, you know, we're back. You know, we, we took a 5,000 year, 5, year break, but we're back. And now you're asking us to accept, you know, international norms, as you call them, and international law, as you call it, without having, without us having a voice in it. So, you know, I mean, I, w- I never allowed myself to be entirely persuaded by that, but it was a pretty clever argument in a lot of ways. The other thing they would say is, look, we're going to be fine, that is to say, you, United States, and China. Um, because we have, as the presidents described it, a great power relationship, and it's a new relationship. And, you know, he would go down a path of describing that new relationship. And generally it was kind of, we'll start from a blank sheet of paper, butcher paper, you know. And he would say, so how, what do we want the relationship to be? And I said, well, for, for starters, we don't have a blank sheet of paper. We can't start from a blank sheet. We have five, you know, key allies in the region and your actions are intimidating to them, you know, in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And so, you know, I would write up, you know, Japan, Korea, Australia, Philippines. And I'd say, okay, now, now that we have that on the blank sheet of paper, how do you want to describe our relationship? And, you know, of course, then it would, generally speaking, he would smile wryly. And then, you know, the conversation would, you know, move off in some other direction. But that's the trick we have. That's not a trick. That's, that's the path we have to navigate. We, we have these responsibilities, and that's exactly what they are. We, we, we have certain principles we will not back away from, such as freedom of navigation. And the things that occur with China that, that either impact our allies or infringe upon certain things like freedom of navigation, we just have to make it very clear that that's unacceptable to us. So, for example, you probably saw last week, you know, there was a, you know, we sent a warship um, near one of the, the, the Chinese claimed islands or these man-made islands that they've now, that have sprung up. And, um, and of course, the Chinese um, protested, but, but they understand what we're doing and we understand what they're doing. Here's what's really going on. Look, I, the way I think about it is... You know, in terms of Russia and China, if you take Russia, China, and the United States, we, we, we define our security relationships just so much differently than the other two. We do. So for us, it's the 53 allies and partners. Since the Korean War, we have built our security around this exquisitely constructed and carefully managed system of allies and partners. Okay. Russia, not so much. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm hard-pressed to name a... a an ally or a partner of Russia. So 
And as they look ahead, they recognize they're in a they're in kind of a decline. They're in decline in a lot of different ways. And so I, it feels to me as though they're trying to reestablish a sphere of influence in anticipation of the time when they do ex experience these economic downturns and demographic downturns. So they're kind of it's kind of old school in a lot of ways with with Russia. And then with China, it feels to me, and I read this someplace, that, that it's really mostly about supply chains. You know, if you had 1.4 billion people to feed and to keep happy and to and to sustain an economy, you'd be pretty worried about your supply chain as well. So, you know, the South China Sea only became a real problem when deep water drilling became a technological reality. And that's, so that's what's happening now. There's enormous resources and China wants them. And so these man-made islands are springing up and there's resources in Africa and China wants them. And so they're, they're all over Africa. They're all over South America for the same reason. So, you know, what we have to watch with these three, you know, relatively speaking peers is where we have potential friction points is where Russia's sphere of influence rubs into our ally called NATO. And in, and in the Pacific, it's where our allies' interests rub uncomfortably into Chinese efforts to make sure they can sustain a viable supply chain. But, but we, all, we understand each other, the three of us. And that's why it's manageable. And it's also why the other two are really a lot more challenging because we don't understand each other. If we continue a little west now, uh, so John Kerry made remarks, or it's been reported that he made remarks that Trump is likely to be out within the year and resist peace talks with uh, Abbas. And, and what what are your feelings as to the resistance that Trump has within within the U.S. Even just you know political resistance that he has to get any sort of job done in this. It, of course, this has to do with the Iran nuclear deal and so forth. So there, there, there's a lot of upward or uphill uh, um, struggles that he's going to face for the next three years. Well, first of all, I don't have any feelings whatsoever about you described it as domestic resistance to this president. I mean, as, you know, I mean, as a citizen, I have a view, but you invited me here to speak to you as the former yeah. chairman, and the former chairman has no thoughts whatsoever about um you know how the president is managing his domestic agenda and those who have to deliver it yeah. you did mention the iran deal and, and that's that is a national security issue and it is one in which i participated and as you know the president obama with and by the way the the, the important point to make about as you know it's the iran deal that's the cliff notes name for it but right. it's the joint comprehensive program of agreement plan of agreement and it's the p5 plus one the five permanent members of the national security council plus germany and and therefore it is one of these multinational agreements made with the explicit purpose of trying to take iran's nuclear aspiration and kind of pull it out from the other four or five things they do that are troublesome in the region, you know, surrogates and proxies, weapons, trafficking, cyber, maritime uh, capabilities. So, you know, no one has said that everything is fine now with Iran because the nuclear capability has been compartmented, but that was the plan, you know, compartment the nuclear capability, watch what they do with the money they gain from their when the sanctions were relieved. And I haven't seen a report, actually. I mean, you hear anecdotal evidence about all the money went to, you know, 
Qasem Soleimani, the you know the head of the the IRGC. I don't know that. I mean, I just literally, my my hope is that the intelligence community has watched whether there have been changes in the in in the way that the additional revenue now that Iran has, where it's been going. It could very well be that the unrest, the you know the political unrest in Iran, is related to the aspirations that that the middle class had before the the joint comprehensive program of uh, of agreement and what they see as a reality now i don't know that would be actually a good thing if that was the case so you know this is one of those cases you probably have heard the famous um, story when joe Wenlai, the chinese leader you know watching the the revolution in China take place, you know, somebody said to him, by way of making an analogy, well, what do you think about the uh, French Revolution, you know, what, let's see, this would have been 200 years earlier, and he said, ah, it's too early to tell. And that's the way I feel about the Iran nuclear uh, issue. I mean, I, I was persuaded by the, those who knew the science, who knew the, you know, the surveillance monitoring and verification regime, who knew more about um, their ability to recapture and restart a program and how quickly they could, you know, if they were to do that, how quickly it would become a problem in terms of weaponization. You know, so I, w I was part of all that. But, but it was always the case that, that you take the nuclear issue off to the side and then you, you monitor it. This wasn't, you know, you don't wipe your brow and say, phew, I'm glad that's done. You monitor it to see if at least their behavior vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear issue was moderated. I mean, and I, that could take five, six, seven years, and we're, you know, we're really only a little more than a year and a half into it. And, and the, the other thing about the, the, this nuclear issue, you know, or the fact that these rogue nations, I mean, if you, can take, if you can take the nuclear issue off the table with a rogue nation, they're, they're just a lot easier to deal with in every other way. I mean, imagine, a world today where we were worried about North Korea's nuclear cape, which we are right now, and we were equally worried, perhaps, with Iran's. I mean, that would become, that would take a complex problem and make it even more complex. So that, that was my view of the nuclear uh, deal with Iran. Does, uh, from a diplomacy perspective, what, what impact does it have, you know, obviously talking about Trump talking about getting rid of the Iran deal or that it's, you know, the worst deal of all time. Get, getting rid of something like the TPP, which arguably was our, you know, one economic entry point with and kind of agreement point with China. From a diplomatic perspective, what does kind of scrapping these deals and these diplomatic successes that we've had, what impact does that have on, say, diplomatic efforts with yeah. somewhere like North Korea? No, it's a good question. I, and uh, look, over the course of time, it, my time in, at the at the national level and international. I, I think I traveled as chairman to 90 countries, which is you know just a little less than half of the countries that exist. Many of them multiple times, the, you know, the ones that, where we had important national interests. So it, it became pretty clear to me that there was a, a that, that, that the relationship of power and control was changing. Now, what, and what I mean by that, this sounds a little bit counterintuitive maybe, but you know, 50 years ago, if you were to assess a nation's p 
power, you would generally do it on the basis of how much they control, how much of the economic market do they control, how much of the you know, global security environment do they control. And so there was a direct relationship between power and control. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that, that and it's, it's any number of things that have contributed to it, mostly technological change, ubiquitous information, intense scrutiny on everything that happens. I mean, everything we're talking about here is intensely scrutinized. So my, my view of the relationship of power and control now is that it, it is often the case that in order to maintain your power, you may have to actually relinquish, relinquish a little control, share it share control. And I, the energy sector is a perfect example. Then I'll come back to TPP. You know, the energy sector for years, decades, fought off renewables. The energy sector was largely defined as gas and electric and, you know, carbon fuels and, you know, and there's, by the way, there's 900, you know, gas and utility companies in, in the country, but there's probably nine, six to nine that are really the heavy hitters. And they fought off renewables for a long time. And then they came to the realization that as the renewables you know, became more efficient, more effective, that wasn't going to last. Now, they could have kept fighting them off, or they did what most of them did. They didn't all do it, but most of them took a look and said, well, you know what? We own the, 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 the ability to transport electricity is really ours. So how about we bring them into our grid and we make them partners. We, we relinquish a little control because they're in our grid. And by the way, we might also go right to the user level, the individual customer, let them design their own you know, energy footprint. And, and if they want, they could even contribute energy to the grid. And so you've got this, this kind of paradigm where the big energy companies have relinquished control, but they've sustained their power in the process. And I personally think that's where we, we're, we're gonna be in almost every sector. And so from a national security perspective, you know, if we desperately try as the status quo power to retain control, I think our power will dissipate. It'll dissipate, by the way, because it's enormously expensive to do all this stuff ourselves. By the way, the other thing is you end up with suboptimal solutions because you're only looking at it through your lens, your filter. And so, you know, you're looking at it through your filter. You're not learning in a way you can if you form a larger collaboration. So you're not going to get an optimal solution. It's going to be expensive, unimaginably in some cases, and it won't last. It won't endure. It'll, you know, the next administration will come in or the one after that and we'll flip it. I'm, you know, that's just the way the cycle is going to work in a world where the relationship of power and control is different. Back to TPP. And I'll link it to your question about China. I thought and I think most of the military leaders that served with me thought that, you know, it's important if we're trying to moderate and shape, moderate's probably not a fair word, if we're trying to shape Chinese behavior and their future, not only in the, re in the you know, in the immediate environs of, of the South China Sea, but regionally, wouldn't we want to try to use all the instruments of power, one of which is economic power, and wouldn't TPP be a way of, again, sharing the burden and and causing uh, China to have to confront, you know, this consortium of partners in an economic pact. I got it that there was, I mean, I don't really got it. I, you know, I'm, 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 I didn't really study the economics of it to the extent I probably should have. And I know that there were some flaws in it in terms of impact, 
in here inside the United States. But the point is, I think we could have mitigated all of that and still use that instrument of national power in a rational way in order to help our um, our ongoing and ever-evolving relationship with China. So, I had a question, and it, and it kind of goes into this uh, relinquishing control idea and, and in a nation that we haven't talked about yet, Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and with the, the Taliban raid on the, the hotel in Kabul recently, what do you what do you foresee our the end game being with our involvement in Afga- in Afghanistan? Yeah. How do we relinquish control to empower those right. people to to really yeah. get a hold of this? First of all, thing? using the the words end game in Afghanistan in the same sentence is it's absolutely just unimaginable. Yeah, just I mean, you know, you realize of course we're you know, we're trying to to change the course of centuries of history in that in that region and in that country in particular. But we do have national security interests there. We have them literally inside of Afghanistan. This isn't all about just doubling down on an effort because we've been there for, you know, uh, 16 years. This is about, um, you know, the way that that South Asia area can be, uh, you know, can be radicalized, can be used as safe haven. But even more important, we have interest in Pakistan and in the relationship between Pakistan and, and India, which is part of our, the reason we're in Afghanistan, because, you know, the if you talk to Pakistanis, they, they talk of, of Afghanistan as part of their strategic depth. That is to say, if they ever get into a conflict with, if India ever gets into a conflict with Pakistan, the Pakistanis see that those mountain ranges, those passes, and actually parts of Afghanistan where they have deep tribal connections as part of their strategic depth. Mm-hmm. So we need to be there. Now, the question is how big? How, how much do we need to be there and for how long? The how long part is probably easier to answer than the how much. The, the how long part is, you know, for a very long time. I mean, this is a generational issue. You, I, I know some of you in the room have been in Afghanistan. And we tend to think it's, you know, four or five ethnic groups, you know, Uzbeks, Tajiks, Baluks, you know, Pashtu. It's not that at all. It's like every valley has its own little tribal, you know, interest. And of course, there is the added problem of opium production in the southern part of Afghanistan. So, you know, I think the answer to what our role should be, I think we've defined it pretty well. You know, at every opportunity, we ought to be passing the responsibility for combat operations to the Afghans because until you do, like in Iraq, they, they, they'll they be happy for us to, to do that for them. But at some point, they have to be the face of their government out in the in the tribal regions trying to maintain the peace, not us. What that means is our focus ought to continually be on two things. One is obviously training and advising and developing their security forces. And the other is we should continue to provide them the things that, that we do better than anyone in the world and that they can't do, whether it's intelligence, um, a certain amount of logistics, you know, airlift, intra-theater airlift, and um, and in some cases, in isolated cases, precision fires. But you know, that's by the way, that's the same answer I would have given to you if we talked about um, Iraq and Syria, Yemen, North Africa. As we've kind of wrapped around our world tour here, I have a more general question just about the military. I, it's been in the news a lot lately, in a pretty constant theme of Trump's uh, Twitter theme during the shutdown about military spending, uh, about you know enhancing the power of our military. I'd, I'd be curious for your perspective on 
what is the current state of the U.S. military, and in, in particular, you know, in terms of spending and in terms of how it should fit into a, a budget as we continue to try to work all that out? Yeah, I don't I don't have insight into the exact readiness of the force as I did two years ago, um, but in listening to testimony, I think it's, I think, I think readiness has suffered. Pardon me. I, and by the way, let me describe readiness has suffered. When the when sequestrate the Budget Control Act, well, look, I mean, I, I think, not I think, in my entire time as chairman, all four years, we had an, a continuing resolution each year, which is a political tool to you know to get through these um, these you know considerable disagreements about how much spending on defense, how much on you know other discretionary um, spending, entitlements, all the things that get wrapped up into a political discussion about the budget, the, you know, the, the uh, debt and so forth. But in the meantime, when you do con uh, continue resolution to continue resolution, and then add on top of that the Budget Control Act, which artificially imposes caps, but more important, has a, me a mechanism where you really can't spend it where you want to spend it. You're going to spend it where... The, you know, the Congress says you have to take the same decrement in each of the kind of silos of your budget. I mean, it would be like me telling you, you know, you, I'm going to take 12% of your household budget and it's going to come off across the board. You're going to take it out of your, you know, energy consumption, your, the, the cost of maintaining your car, the co you know, and, and you, you can't say, well, I'm just going to park my car and then I'm going to have more money for my oil bill. You can't do that. No, I'm sorry. You're going to take X amount out of each of those budget lines and it's been ridiculous really and, and it was known to be ridiculous when it was done and here we are and it's still there so readiness has declined our more we've mortgaged our future modernization you know we're we've been in a kind of state of of suspended animation on most of our modernization programs and as a result of that all the resources we have had have gone into sustaining our operations you know so we're so to answer your question you know, what's the state of the military? The forces we deploy to do the jobs, you know, whether we deploy them into the Middle East or into Asia or into, or into uh, uh, Europe are exquisitely trained. Well, I mean, let me back up. I'm going to back off that a bit. But they're exquisitely prepared for the mission we give them. May not be prepared for other missions, you know, higher end, uh, you know, higher intensity conflict. You know, when you're getting someone ready to go to Afghanistan, that's not the same as getting them ready to go potentially to the per Korean Peninsula. And we have seen some of, the, I think, some of the effects of this degradation in readiness and some of the accidents we've seen at sea, in the air, and on the ground. Now, to your question about the president's budget. Yeah, so we do need to jumpstart. First of all, we need to get rid of the artificial mechanisms related to the Budget Control Act. That's the first step. Otherwise, the budget that's been submitted is going to be handed back to us at the levels of the Budget Control Act. So, and that happened even on President Obama's watch. The budget he submitted was always higher than what we knew we would get because the basic law that limits the budget is still in place. And at some point, though, when those mechanisms are removed, uh, if, that, if that law is rescinded, then we will need... To, to be jump-started. But, you know, there's a related questionnaire that I confronted in my early years as chairman, which is how much can we, the nation afford to spend on its defense? Now, the easy answer, if you're wearing the uniform, is whatever we need. You know, we tell you what we need, you get it. But we did find ourselves in the, in the 08, 09, 10 time frame, in the middle of a recession, where the chiefs, the chiefs and I all conceded that 
you know, when the nation has an economic problem, the military, military solves the nation's problems. Most of the time overseas, but sometimes we actually can contribute to solving other problems at home, whether it's, you know, humanitarian relief, disaster relief, whatever it happens to be. In this case, the chiefs and I got together and said, you know, the nation's got an economic problem called the recession, and we may have to tighten our belts, just like, you know, the rest of America is tightening its belts. But we can't tighten it so tight that we can't do what the nation needs us to do if we're called. And so we did. And we went, you know, we went forward understanding that we were in a period of uh, austerity, let's call it, and we plowed through those years, 8, 9, and 10. Now, the problem is when the nation recovered and when it was no longer, a, you know, it was no longer necessary for us to argue for austerity, we didn't get the money because they imposed the Budget Control Act, Congress of the United States. So, you know, we did our due, in our view, we did our due diligence to try to only ask for what we needed. Then when we popped out of that period, we got the Budget Control Act imposed, and we haven't recovered. So if you think from 08 to 18, that's 10 years where we haven't had the budget, not only the budget we needed, but the budget. Um, by the way, one other thing about the budget. If we were able to close the bases that we needed to close and retire the equipment that we need to retire, we would have a, we would probably have a problem that's 15 to 20% less serious than it is today. So when you combine all of that, you know, 10 years of austerity, rough, uh, roughly speaking austerity, I mean, it's, you know, I always feel a little guilty talking about a $600 billion budget as austerity, but in, the, in terms of what we've been asked to do, it feels like it. So 10 years of austerity, can't close bases, can't retire equipment, which means you're investing in bases that you don't need and you're investing in equipment that you don't need that's a tough formula for anybody to manage well we uh we had a chat with representative liz cheney and in, in december talking about tax reform and she brought up that same budget control act and so i really hope that she can lead the charge in in getting rid of yeah and and by the way that's actually the most that's the that's the imperative if there's any budget imperative for the defense department it's the budget control act going away so that we can actually have a chance of getting what we need. But the other thing is we need budget predictability. And that, what that means is, you know, we have to um, encourage the Congress to avoid continuing resolutions because that's not predictability. And the last is flexibility. And that includes the ability to close bases that we don't need and retire equipment that we don't need. And um, so we, we kind of found our niche with this podcast in, in connecting millennials with Policy figures, policy, or policymakers, and and people of influence, and uh, I mean, you certainly are are you know in that category. And and I want to come you mean back. The millennial category. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to uh, make mention of your book coming out in the next couple months because we read a couple chapters of that as part oh, of your great. class. And uh, so, radical inclusion: why leaders influence more by controlling less. And your your six main principles. Uh, give them memories, and that's a, a sense of belonging, make it matter, learn to imagine, relinquish control to preserve power, which we've mm -hmm. talked about today, bias for action, and co-create context. And I'd love for you to um, you know, spend a couple minutes with us and just how, uh, what, what should millennials expect going in, and we're all business school students, so yep. going into the world of business, uh, what advice would you give to our generation and um, you can put a little national security spin on it if you want mm -hmm. to or just leadership in general well look I think 
first of all, I, I, uh, I'm envious of you entering the workplace right now. I just think, you know, I think the opportunities are mind-numbing, not mind-numbing for someone like me. I mean, um, you, you just when you think simply about, um, you know, the, the rate at which technology changes, the, way to, the, the rate at which information not only becomes available but can become you know, uh, manipulated uh, in a positive way and also in a negative way. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think you ought to enter the workplace with a great deal of optimism that, and that you can make a difference. And look, you, you articulated at the front end of the podcast that, um, you know, that there, the country is in a, you know, not for the first time in our history, but we're kind of at odds with each other. We tend to, we tend to spend more time finding and looking for what's how we're different than how we're the same and so you, you know you can help with that uh, you know duke's phrase by the way in, in the business school of course is developing leaders of consequence you know not just someone who's going to be given the title of leader but who's going to actually do something with it and uh, you know and i think based on what i've seen you will you ask about advice uh, look I, uh, these principles we lay out in the leadership book are all about um, trying to make leaders more self-aware in every sector. It's not just, you know, we use a lot of military anecdotes, but we also have a lot of business uh, anecdotes in there as well. And I think we may even have a couple at the national security level. Um, but I tell, you know, I tell young men and women who I teach leadership now that um, leaders have a couple of fundamental responsibilities. Always have. It's just more important now. One of them is to develop that sense of belonging. Uh, uh, you know, make the team feel like, feel like a team. And that's more important today than ever. This is why we wrote the book, by the way. We sensed that the, that the environment in which leaders were trying to navigate had gotten a lot harder. You know, so, you know, you're, you're leading a team, but you're competing because... You know, either because they're looking, you know, might be looking at a personal mobile device or they're connected somehow or they're going to be connected somehow. They're going to get contrary information. They're going to get information that, and they're not they're not sure if facts are facts anymore. You know, facts are fragile. I mean, they are. The facts are fragile. In that environment, leaders have to establish an uncommon level of trust with their with those who follow them. And we think the first step is to reemphasize this idea that you belong to a team, whatever that team is, you know, starting from the basic family unit up to and including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The other thing we tell leaders is they have to, in that world I just described, yet you have to be a sense maker. You have to make sense of things for those who follow you because they're, they're sitting in, in, in the middle of a, of a world of competing narratives. It's not competing facts, it's competing, it's competing stories. You know, I mean, you, we see it all the time, uh, you know, and we use an anecdote in the book about the the uh, incident out in Berkeley where uh, the, the alt-right speaker came and and then there was a, a, a confrontation among the students and the and the campus police. And it was portrayed in three literally three different ways with pictures to back it up on social media. And so. You know, how do you decide what really happened in that environment? And, and you know, it worries me a bit because when, when, you know, when information can be manipulated, now I'm using the word in the pejorative term, and cause your idea about facts to be corrupted, to whom will you turn to sort that out? And that's where leaders have to be at the front and center of that. So you have a team, you're responsible for it, 
you have to, of course, deliver on whatever it is you've been asked to deliver, whether it's an increase in growth or, you know, take that hill if you're in the military. You have to deliver, but you also have to be really un unbelievably focused on building that team and causing it to trust you so that you can be the sense maker. I mean, I could go on and on. It's just, it's a really exciting time to lead, um, but you better be armed with the right tools to navigate the space. And in your concept, beware of the, the digital echoes. And the, I think that's what Yeah, w w we use the term digital echo. Um, we were going to talk about it in terms of memes, but people's, when we kind of walked that out, people's eyes glazed over. But, but the concept is the same. If I say something on social media and it's, it's believed and then people share it, it echoes, right? I mean, that's really the phenomena. It echoes. And so we call it, we, we talk about digital echoes exist and they can be used for um, entertainment purposes. Think about Chewbacca mom, you know, pulling on the Chewbacca face and laughing her way to school with her kids. And, it go, you know, millions of people are chuckling. And so that's kind of cool, right? That's a digital echo. You know, it just echoes and echoes and echoes and echoes. It can be used for noble purposes like the Ice Bucket Challenge, where people raised millions of dollars for ALS. But it also can be used for things like ISIS, where the ideology doesn't pass from some little cell of, of you know, media experts in ISIS. It passes from individual to individual to individual, and it echoes. And unless you compete in that space as a leader, then that echo will will overwhelm you. And I think that's going to get harder, not easier, as we look at the future. Well, General Dempsey, you've been more than generous with your time. Really appreciate you sitting with us. It's a tradition on our podcast at the end of every episode to raise a glass to the men and women fighting overseas and domestically. Very fitting having you sit here. Uh, thank you all for your service and allowing us to talk about these issues freely. My so. pleasure. I've enjoyed it, and I second the motion on raising a glass to those great young men and women who are out there serving on the frontiers of freedom, but also here at home with law enforcement and uh, other first responders. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. That's a wrap. Thank you. Moving me down the highway Moving me down the highway Moving the hills of life won't Pass me by